Richards Bowie Versus Tillian Is this year when I'm glowy Am I killing? I hope it's not a blowy Or a villain It's time for Bowie versus Dillian. Hello and welcome to another edition of Bowie versus Dylan. I'm Charlie and I like Bowie. And I'm Jake and I love Dylan. This year we're taking a deep dive look at 1986. Oh, yeah. And we should know. You should know. You probably already know. The 80s <laughs> were not a lot of people's friends. Certainly not David Bowie. Nope. Or Bob no, nor Bob Dylan. Before we get into this, I, you know, Jake, I have a tendency every once in a while to see it, to check our own standings, you know, just do like a quick Google search that says, you know, just Bowie versus Dylan. Or finding any other ways in which they intersect. Yeah. And uh, in doing so, I found a couple uh, interesting quotes. Okay. I found this this article from NME about yeah. uh, just times when Keith Richards said mean things about other people. <laughs> yes, which that must have been a long that must have been a long article. <laughs> well, you know, I think I picked out like the top fifteen artists or something, <laughs> and both Bowie and Dylan made the list. Oh, can you read those quotes? So, I'm, gonna, I'm that's exactly what I'm going to do, Jay. That's exciting. That's exactly what I'm going to do. It's exciting. So Keith Richards on David Bowie, <clears throat> and of course we're going to keep things not you know got to keep. We're, we're going to keep the swear words down here. Hard PG. Hard PG. Hard PG. <laughs> Bowie. About Bowie. It's all pose. I mean, I should try to do, like, a Keith Richards... It's all here. pose. Here. It's all pose. It's all effing posing. It's nothing to do with music. He knows it, too. Whoa. Okay. No, it's pretty It's pretty. All right, mean. so should we try to guess, like, um, what drug he was on when he started spouting <laughs> this stuff? No, I mean, like, was I that a heroin comment or a, a coke comment? Did you even start on that? Pig tranquilizers? Uh, how is Keith Richards even still alive? Can we just Nobody knows, that man. Really, really, really quickly, just, just a little All the people that, that died, like, when they were 27 and everything like that. And, and Keith Richards is in his 70s and he's still alive. How well, is this he, possible? Well, he looks like he's 100, so that's something. <laughs> I read a really pretty hilarious uh, Onion article some years back. About, uh, from the perspective of his housekeeper, waiting to find him dead in his bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> Every day convinced that this would be the day that she found him, you know. The year was 1978. Over, overdosed. <laughs> 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 Alright, so that was his point. His, his view on Dylan. Here we go. Alright, hit me. I'm not really entirely sure what all of this means here at the end, but you, you know, you can give your perspective too. Alright, can't wait. Bob's a nasty little bugger. <laughs> All my members say to me, I could have written Satisfaction, but you couldn't have written Desolation Row. I said it. Well, you're right there, Bob. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm not really sure what, if, if this is not really like a zippy comeback. All right, so. Keith Richards, is he like being honest about that, or is it sarcastic, like, that song sucks, of course I couldn't read it because it sucks. Well, you wrote about trying, that. You know? Well, it sounds what like. What is he even trying to say there? Um... I want to say that he's being sarcastic about how Desolation Row, which is an epic track off of Highway 61 Revisited, yeah. it's like 13 minutes long, it has like a thousand verses, it's all, yeah. it's one of his more like lucid, you know, unconscious writing musing things. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, what was the other song they said, Start Me Up, what was that one? No. Satisfaction. Oh, Satisfaction. So Satisfaction is a simple rock song, and Desolation Row... That's what Row, trying to like... It's like a yeah, long the stones poetic. Wouldn't, stones wouldn't dirge. do desolation, girl. 
No, although they were famously, you know, chasing the trends, they might have tried at some point to do something like that. <laughs> at least Mick yeah. Jagger would have. I don't know. Keith yeah, Richards sure, probably didn't care. Sure. Speaking of Mick Jagger, he's a Mick, of course. Well, he yeah, yes. Come, let's let's he stop come in. back into play later <laughs> in today's episode. Well, foreshadowing for you. What's What's funny is that we almost we had a we had a Keith Richards near miss with Bob Dylan. He uh he played oh. with he played with Dylan. Man, I don't want to give too much of this away because don't like, give away. No, no. All right, foreshadowing. We're just we're just sitting up. All right, I got one more quote for Whenever you. Whenever we get to 1985, Keith Richards is coming up. I'll just say that. Well, Mick Jagger's all over 85 for Bowie, so. Well, yeah. All right. Fine. This is a major Hey, there's probably something to be whenever, said about whenever how. Whenever the heck we get to 1985. There's something to be said about how Mick Jagger was like Bowie's guy and Keith Richards was Dylan's guy. I know that's interesting. Because I don't Interst- intersections. I don't think Dylan ever really worked with with Jagger, as far as I remember. Oh, so spicy. All right, I got one more quote for you. It's Hit from me. Reeves Gabriels, which was uh, Bowie's main guitarist throughout the 90s, and right. also was in Sweet Sweet Tin Machine. Oh, did someone and, say Tin Machine? Uh, recent interview from Uncut Magazine. Recent? He quotes, he says, it was an article about Bowie, and I just happened to read it and found this in here. His quote that involved both of them was, Dylan gave voice to the alienated, mm. but David gave voice to the freaks. What? <laughs> I thought it was going to go with like a different fun word like alienated, but he just went with freaks. Oh, freaks. I, th- I feel like, you know, if we ever, for some reason, write a book together about Bowie and Dylan, I feel like Voice to the Alienated, Voice to the Freaks would be a Whoa. decent title. That's not too bad. Yeah. Hey, you can pre-order that on Amazon.com. <laughs> comes out in, there, yeah. It we'll, comes out in... We still have to write it, but you can pre-order it. It comes out in never. <laughs> <laughs> Voice of the Alien, Voice of the Freaks, by Charlie and Jake That's a really great title, actually. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm And then, like... All right. Okay, all right. Yep. I'm going to hand things over to you at Sweet Sweet Dylan's Not-So-Sweet 1986. All right, man. Hit it. Chaz, first I have a question for you. Have you ever worked in any capacity in the restaurant industry? Uh, no, I don't think I have, no, actually. all the jobs you've had. Okay, well, I, I, I was I in... So. Uh, I was a dishwasher for several summers... Back I in my, my early 20s. And um, they have a term in a kitchen when some sort of food runs out or when they can't serve something anymore. Do you know mm-hmm. what that is? No. They say, 86 on the pork! 86 is the term for when something can't be served anymore for whatever reason. Uh-huh. 86, okay. 86. You hear 86 running all through that thing. And I just want to tell you before I get started on this, I feel like 86ing 1986. Huh? That was a good lead up until the last line was a little. <laughs> you were working, you were working pretty hard on that last uh, part. I want an '86 knocked out loaded Dylan's 1986 <laughs> album. I want an '86. That works a little bit better. Yeah. I want an '86 is far, far East tour from 1986. All right, here's something I don't want an '86, but we just got to get it out of the way. On January 31st, 1986, Bob Dylan uh, had his sixth child. His first outside of his marriage was Sarah Dylan. Okay. This was his secret child, Chaz. His secret child. Oh, the who, secret child. You know, we've kind of talked child. about how we don't want to get too much into the seedy sides of their personal It's not seedy. It just was a secret. And this is definitely falls in the seedy No, it's not seedy. He made, he made a beautiful child with one of his backup singers, Carolyn Dennis, who he married that year as well. Okay. Uh, right. I won't. You know what? I'll I'll I'll, I'll do this for you. To it's keep, just the basics. To just keep basics. it out of the tabloids, I won't I won't even read her name. Anyway. Okay. Right. It was a secret until 2001 when a biography wow. about uh, 
Bob Dylan called Down the Highway by Howard Soons came out, and I've been reading that one. But I did not I did not realize that he was he was the one that broke the story. Like at the end of the paragraph <clears throat> after he sort of revealed this, he was like uh-huh. and this has never been this has never been revealed until right now. He like had to say <laughs> this this was me guys. Hey guys, this was me. I did hey, this. I just did this one. Yeah. So he married Carolyn Dennis later that year and uh, my last <clears throat> my last C D my last semi-seedy thing is he just continued to have like multiple relationships, long-term and short-term, with backup singers and other women around the globe. So, uh, yeah, Bob. I know. Bob's not, you know, he's not in a good place. Be, be your best self. Come on, man. He can't. He just can't. Uh, he went into the recording the studio. Self, kind of depressing. That's not true. Chaz, you be nice to Bob. <laughs> Was it's he nice time. to those backup singers? <laughs> well, what's who's gonna give them a voice? Where's their podcast? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things about how the backup singers, you know, later said that they didn't care that he was carrying on with other backup singers and other women and stuff like that. It's like as long as he was, you know, when he was with me, he was with me, kind of stuff. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so let's make it. It's about the music. Let's, let's be. About all right. The music. So let's get into some let's music. Be about the, the unfortunate personal decisions. Yeah. Do you want to hear? If you want to hear something truly seedy, you'll listen to "Knocked Out Loaded" by Bob <laughs> I don't. So I won't. <laughs> uh, he had some recording sessions in 1985 with Dave Stewart, one half of the Eurythmics, oh, yeah. and then went uh, in an to record choice. more. That's an interesting it's, choice. It's an interesting choice, but kind also, of also notably. Well, we worked with Annie Lennox later on. Right. Well, so Dave Stewart is Dylan's guy, and Annie Lennox uh-huh. is Bowie's gal. You know. Clearly, I mean, Another. Annie Lennox is clearly indebted to Bowie. Yeah, and Dave Stewart's like the guy hanging around with the weird hair. What happened earlier? They made, they did an amazing. Uh, they did under pressure together at uh, some kind of fundraiser for. Uh, oh, I'm like I'm too tired or something. <laughs> I just need to stop talking, probably. Wow, Chaz. Take a I know, that really didn't go anywhere. It was, it was starting out with a pretty good anecdote. They uh, sang at the... Uh, <laughs> okay, wait, no, I got it. Okay, I'm coming back together. Okay. He's back, baby. So, I don't, I don't remember what year they actually did this. I don't remember what year Freddie Mercury died. Uh, but they had a pretty sweet like tribute to Freddie Mercury, and uh, Annie Lennox sang his parts on Under Pressure. Oh, I bet that was good. She just she just destroyed it. She's it was amazing. Just, it's an incredible performance. Well, you and I both have at least a fondness for the Eurythmics. I, I we had, do. I, I do. Re- I actually like them. One I don't or know about two you. of their records. Yeah, me too. Our parents listened exhaustively to them, so they did. And which I was, it still yeah. seems a kind of a strange choice given their their other main musical taste. Yeah, it does kind of, but they kind of, especially Dad, like kind of got into them. He had a crush on Annie Lennox. Well, he had a crush on a lot of female singers. That's true. That's true. <laughs> all right, so he's trying to record it. Was it. All in, it was all innocent. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Emmy Lou Harris, we love you. So did my dad, our dad. Uh, recording. Freddie Mercury didn't die until 91. I thought it was earlier than that. I'm very wrong. <sighs> okay, well, then it was much later they did this uh, tribute together because. I thought he died in the 80s. I'm obviously I, mistaken. I, Anywho. I would like to 86 this conversation right now. <laughs> Can I? Uh, 86 this conversation. All right. He went in for recording sessions in 85, then Los Angeles in 86. 
he was trying hard to find like a band to do his to do his album with. He he tried out the Heartbreakers of Tom Petty fame. He tried out Los Lobos, an LA band that was just yeah. rising at that point. T Bone Burnett, his old friend uh, and super producer of popular Americana later on. Al Cooper, who we talked about, and he just couldn't write enough good original tunes. Jazz, imagine that. In 1986, he had a major, not only did he have major writer's block, but apparently he was having like some sort of musical identity crisis, which I've heard, okay. I've heard all this before. He's always, okay. and sometimes he comes yeah, out good. Before, right? Oh yeah. Sometimes he comes out good with this. Like, uh, apparently Nashville Skyline was a writer's block album, apparently. Okay. Um, so yeah, Knocked Out Loaded, speaking of which, clocks in at a cool 35 minutes. Well, at least there's that. That seems like a positive point you've told me already. Yeah, at least it's not 60. We're glad for that. Uh, so it's uh, he ended up with, apparently, the sessions were very good, you know, that he was recording with, but he didn't end up using almost any of them. <laughs> Why is so, this such a common theme for him? So we just heard that, uh, I don't know. Why don't we record a whole bunch of good songs and a few bad ones and only release the bad ones? What do you say, guys? Who's up? Who's up for this? It's... Not you, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you. I'm going to do it anyway. Wait, 12 people love this song? Get it out of here. Out. Nobody likes this one? It's in. It's in. There's there's two versions of it on there. Two versions of it on there. Uh, some more la- layers and more synths on there. People have said over and over that Dylan didn't trust his own taste. Like, he had terrible taste in his own music. Like, how is that possible? I don't know. It seemed pretty clear that he did, <laughs> based on what we just said. Yeah. Okay, so I'm looking forward. So we just heard the news that uh, the Bootleg Series Volume 14, more blood, more tracks, based on his 1975 album Blood on the Tracks, is coming out in November. Um, I'm looking forward to next year when the 1985-86 sessions comes out. <laughs> 12 discs, 14... <laughs> 14 remixes mm. and uh, mm-hmm. some swag. Some essays about how great the sessions were. Mm. Yep, I, a ridiculous critical reevaluation, which people suddenly say, you know? No, no, you know. Best period. You know. One of his best periods. <laughs> you know what's an underappreciated period? This 1986 period. Well, I'm looking forward to, you know, by the time this episode even airs, Bowie's uh, next box set will be out yeah, of the true. 80s. And I'm looking forward to people critically reevaluating that period and suddenly deciding that the 80s weren't so bad. All Bowie. 80s, all the time, baby. That's all what, 80s, all the that's time. That's what we're doing. It's going to be something. So instead of putting together a cohesive album like he wanted to, it does, it's, not that he didn't, <laughs> it's not like he didn't try. He definitely tried. Uh-huh. Uh, but he ended up with an album with three covers, three collaborations, and uh, two solo songs on it for a total of eight wonderful songs on an album called Knocked Out Loaded. <laughs> what does it actually mean? Uh, like, don't know. Knocked Out Loaded? Or, I mean, we're talking about, like, guns. Knocked Out, we'll see, guns. well, there's no, there's no comma. So it's not, like, knocked, knocked out, out comma, and, you know, like, suggesting that it's end loaded. It's just knocked out loaded. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, all right. I actually can't even wager a guess looking at it. I'm gonna call it KOL. That sounds way better. Uh, KOL, got KOL, it. baby. Cole, knocked out, loaded. Came out on July 4th, 1986. It was his lowest charting album since his debut album, when no one knew who he was. Ooh, Peaked at 54 in the U.S., <laughs> 35 in the U.K. 
Um, it featured throughout uh, the Heartbreakers, and Tom Petty played some rhythm guitar on there as well. He was kind of in with them. I'll, I'll talk about that quickly on the tour when that comes up. He and the Heartbreakers were all over it. Uh, he had a couple singles. One single was from a movie produced by Michael Mann, and Michael Mann is a uh, producer who did like Miami Vice, and he later did Heat. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he made a movie when he was hot. He didn't direct it, but he produced it. In 1986, called Band of the Hand. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? I think, now what I can gather from the really awesome 80s trailer that I saw is that, uh, you know, five or six people from disparate backgrounds who are like, you know, uh, pushed down by the man and pushed down by society sure, and made fun of. Sure. It's a like multi diverse, you know, multi ethnic cast of characters. And somehow they all get out of jail at the same time. Or some of yep, them are out yep. of jail, and they're in Miami, and they come together, and they start kicking booty and taking names all over town. And something, <laughs> happens. something happens where they're redeemed. I don't know. Okay, so that sounds like so the is most... Bob, is Bob in this? What, what was the No, no, Bob, Bob wrote a song especially for it called... Oh, okay, okay. Called, you guessed it, Band of the Hand. Band of the Hand. This is going to just connect nicely to Bowie's 86, right. by the way. Now, in the song, I watched the video, which is just a smash cut of mid-1980s things. Just oh, yeah, so great. sure. Just edited to be the most 1980s thing ever. <laughs> I don't know. Again, so wait great. until we get to Bowie, but go, you go ahead. <laughs> well, so Dylan, you know, when he tried to do something that was of the time, it just ended up looking dated, like, immediately. So, uh-huh. just kind of like, he was not on the cutting edge of anything at this point. Anyway, the chorus is not Band of the Hand, even though that's what the lyric sheet says. The chorus is, It's Hell Time, Man. <laughs> oh, that's what this episode should have been subtitled. It's hell time, man! It's hell, it's hell time, man. It's hell time, comma, man. <laughs> but it's called Band of the Hand. He doesn't, I don't think he ever says Band of the Hand in it. So, I mean, there's that. Okay, so similarly, Chaz, here it is. I just have to tell you. Uh, we mentioned it in our collaborations episode. The uh, seminal early rap legend Curtis Blow enlists Bob Dylan to do a 10-second rap at the beginning of his song Street Rock, the nine-minute rapidy rap song that uh, samples Bob Dylan's rap, you know, once at the end. And then you listen to the whole song thinking Bob Dylan's going to rap some more, but he doesn't. <laughs> Sounds like... Very personal, Jake. It's very, <laughs> it's very like very clear recollection of, of this supposedly. You know, I may have listened. Experience. I may have listened to the song the entire way through and gotten more and more incensed as it went on. <laughs> but I want you to know nine this, minutes of your life you're never gonna get back, Jake. This is a special. But then I added way many more minutes doing what I'm about to show you. Uh. I looked online again, like I did before, uh-huh. to see if somebody, some angel out there, had done, you know, put down the lyrics for Bob Dylan's rap. Okay. It's still not on the internet, Chaz. What is not on the internet that got released in an official capacity? Can you Wait, answer what? me that? Why? There's lyrics for every single thing that you can think of. There's like yeah. teleplays for every TV show on the air. Uh-huh. Like, why has no one done this yet? And then I thought to myself, Chaz, I'm about to make history. Not only am I going to tell you the rap right now, I'm going to put it on the internet later. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> so no one had done it? No one had done it. I could not find the lyrics to this rap. Man. 
All right, you go. So I'm gonna make I'm gonna make history right now. Here it is. I don't know if you Lay want me to. Down. Do you want me to wrap it or do you want me to like poeticize it? It's up to you. Poeticize it so we can savor. We can savor okay. the words. Okay. Here it is. This is the beginning to Curtis Blow featuring Bob Dylan's Street Rock. I've indulged in high knowledge to scan of encyclopedia, keeping constant reachers of our reports in news media. Kids starve in Ethiopia, and we are getting greedier. The rich are getting richer, and the needies getting needier. Fun. The end. That's it. <laughs> That's it. That's, That's it. it. That lasts like seven of the first nine of the nine minutes, right? Um, that lasts ten seconds to start, <laughs> and then it's briefly sampled in the ninth minute. Uh, I really like how he had one somewhat decent rap, uh, rhyme, and then just added in two more that really are terrible. At least two. I mean, it starts off okay. Here's how it is in rap form. Encyclopedia and media, I mean, <laughs> it's working a little hard, but it's a legitimate rhyme. Yeah, it's no, and it's, it's double metered, and then at the end, though, he just starts rhyming ears over and over and over again. We're getting richer, get greedier, richer, metered. Ear, yeah? Yeah. I mean, he kind of like, he kind of like, he kind of like streets it up a little bit. He's like, and we are getting greedier. The rich are getting richer, and the needy's getting needier. I mean, you can barely understand what he's saying. I had to. I don't know how many times I listened to it, but there you go, Chaz. That's just for you and our podcast oh. audience. <laughs> History. I can't believe I was here. Okay, Dylan went out on tour um, twice. He went out to the Far East. I was kind of like surprised to hear this. That- is this, this is pre the Neverending tour, right? Oh yes, uh, by two years. Okay. By two years. Okay, I was going to say I thought it started. Yeah, in the 80s this was life. a this was a more conventional like I put out a crappy album. Now it's time to tour it. Now it's time to do a crappy tour. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I think the tour was more well received than the album. The album is is generally considered like one of his three worst of all times. Okay. If not the worst, it's really bad. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. So he went out on the Far East, uh, and I'm always surprised to learn that the Far East is not only like Japan, but also Australia and New Zealand. Like, I don't think of yeah. those places Yeah, they kind of go together for some reason. They do, because it's technically Far East. It just doesn't seem like that would be the name of it, but it is. Yeah. Okay, here's yeah. the official, here's the official uh, uh, working title of their tour at this time, because Bob wanted to honor his um, backup singers and also his backup band. Here's, here's how it goes. Okay. Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the Queens of Rhythm. Just get them all in there. That's on the poster. That's the name of the that's the name of the band. <laughs> that's the name of the tour. All right. So apparently they sounded. Do you, do you have an awful acronym for that? Oh uh, no, I don't. Let's see. So it'd be B D T P H B Q R. How's that? <laughs> that's not too bad. I feel like you get get a rhythm to that. Like, <laughs> Maybe we can call up Curtis Blow. <laughs> you know, he could do it. He could do it. Uh, take that. You could shake it out into an eleven-minute song. So, uh, Dylan, they, apparently they sounded scrappy and under-rehearsed, even though they rehearsed all the time. They were, like, <laughs> constantly trying to find, you know, trying to find the sound or something, like, be their best selves. I mean, it's the Heartbreakers. This is, like, one of the great American backing bands of all time. But, you know, Bob just doesn't play by any rules. He doesn't sing the same songs the same way or in the same key or in the same meter. He just kind of uh, goes up there and does whatever he wants. So it's kind of up to these crack bands to figure out how to play with him. And if uh, they're up to the task, then something good comes out. But if but if Bob's particularly weird that night or something, it kind of sounds terrible. So it's real hit or uh, miss. I mean, also, they sounded like mid-1980s Bob Dylan, which is always bad. 
Always. You're right. It's Even great. when it's good, it's bad. Um, Dylan introduced these, quote, raps. Not like, not like hip-hop raps, but like, you know, when you talk for a little bit between songs. Yeah. Uh, and so he got real loquacious and ambiguous and started kind of just talking about stuff. It ended up being like... Uh, rapping with Bob. Just rapping with Bob. Bob rapping with Bob, pretty much. He uh, he had some things, some weird things to say about the space program, some weird things to say about Jesus, uh, all kinds of stuff he was talking about. And just rapping. Just he's just like I'm going to talk about the space <sighs> program and how weird it is right now. Um, and then, uh, which uh, this is a particular interest to us later triplicate fans. I know you're one, right? Oh, wait, what? I can count you in as being a a triplicate fan. (laughs) I'm talking to my fellow Bob Dylan fan, Chaz. Oh, wait, what? They started introducing lots of covers, and some of the covers were of Frank Sinatra and Ray Charles. (laughs) So, a little bit of of foreshadowing of the great triplicate (laughs) revolution of 2017. Right there, Uh baby. Uh, He also went and toured the U.S., and apparently that was a success. But you'll like this. This is kind of my favorite tour fact of the day. Okay, go. He played only two Knocked Out Loaded songs in the entire tour. And when I say he played only two Knocked Out Loaded songs, I don't mean like he worked two songs into their regular set. I mean he played two individual instances of of Knocked Out Loaded songs for the entire tour. The entire tour. So the first <laughs> at the first and last show, he played one... KOL song at the first show, and he played one KOL song at the last show, and that's it. <laughs> so he was out there being like, hey, I got this new record. It's called Knocked Out Loaded, and he didn't play anything off of it. <laughs> at all. Oh, Bob. Oh, Bob. <laughs> Sweet Bob. Uh, okay, so for the rest so of the... So he knew what a steaming pilot was. He was aware. Okay, so let me give like you the quote. presumably. I, I was going to wait until we did the points, but I, I want to I read this now, because it Okay. This is his quote about this record. This is how much he cared, Chaz. You can, uh-huh. you can hear it in his heart and his soul. If the records I'm making only sell a certain amount anyway, then why should I take so long putting them together? <laughs> That's what he said. Doesn't that make perfect sense? That kind of explains it all. It really does. It really does. It's like, oh, why? Oh, why is this so crappy? Oh, yeah. Wait, wait. Let's le- let's read that quote again. Oh, there it is. There it is. Who cares? Said Bob. I don't care. <laughs> He's just like peeing all over his fans. He's like, here you go, yeah, guys. I can't buy them, so I might as well just read crappy albums. I don't spend any time on. Yeah. Hey, I tried. You guys don't buy my crappy albums. Why? So I might as well not make them, not even try to make them good. Yeah, who cares? Uh, so he did another two things throughout the year. Um, he did an HBO... Oh, this aired. No, wait, what aired? No, this didn't air in 1986, I don't think. It was called Getting to Dylan. It was a documentary series that aired on HBO. I have not <laughs> I have not seen it. Apparently, it's pretty good um, in terms of like getting him to actually open up and talk about himself. And then... In June, there was a TV special also on HBO called Hard to Handle, and it was a concert documentary about, you guessed it, Bob Dylan and Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and the Queens of Rhythm. Uh, in 1986. I, in 1986, it came out uh, uh, later that year on VHS and the most mid-80s oh, of all yeah. things, Laserdisc. <laughs> Woo! I love Laserdisc. Me too. I really love Laserdisc. I kind of want a Laserdisc. I always feel like... 
feel like they, they make people look like you've shrunk down or something. Like you're holding a CD, but it's all of a sudden, you know, honey, I shrunk the kids or something happened and you're... <laughs> this is I, what I always imagine. This is my, my weird thought when I see laser discs. I actually I don't see them very often anymore. They're so appealing. I can't believe they didn't take off. Like, who doesn't want a giant CD? I do. A record size. A record size laser disc CD. <laughs> that you have to use a special scanner on, like different codes on the things, the barcodes to get to different parts of it. Oh, it's so great. It's just well, like DVD that... is only gigantic and in, I mean, inconvenient. Totally and inconvenient and expensive. And easy to break expensive. and really expensive. Yeah. Otherwise, exactly the thing. Why didn't they take off like the way DVDs did? And but DVDs didn't come out until like '97. It was pretty late. Yeah, it was pretty late. I mean, laser. But, but laserdiscs came out like at the same time as CDs. Right. Laserdiscs were pretty rad, even though it's early '80s. Yeah. Even though they tanked almost immediately. Okay. You know. All right. Oh, and he started filming, and I can't wait. '87 might be might be the worst. And we're gonna have to do a Nadero Raider at the end of this. Uh, wow. For for '86 anyway. But, 87 um, is, is in my opinion, Bowie's worst year. It might so be Dylan. It might be Dylan's as well. It's gonna be. It's oh. gonna be. A, it's gonna be a knockdown, drag out fight of crap. Pretty much. Oh he started filming. Race, race to the bottom. He started filming, just a, what is apparently an absolute disastrous film called Hearts of Fire, that comes Hearts out in 1987. And Chaz, I have a Sounds very awesome. I have a very special segment for you. I'm not gonna make you name it or anything like that. Okay, so all right. Don't worry. Chaz, I don't I don't do this often with Dylan because, as we know, his his look has remained static throughout the years. Yeah, yeah. We have a year in hair for Bob Dylan. Right whoa, whoa, whoa! Back it up here. Okay. Mm, whoa, I'm excited. <laughs> it's actually a year in hair slash wardrobe. I need to read you. I need to read you the description of the things that he wore on tour. So he was feeling groovy, obviously, having just married, but also like having tons of relationships with other women and. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking, but here's what he decided to do. Quote, leather pants and leather singlets, without a shirt on underneath sometimes, leather gloves with the fingers cut off, garish multicolored t-shirts, jeweled rings, dangly earrings, and his hair, and this is a direct quote, tricked into a bouffant. <laughs> this is a direct quote for where? Uh, one of the biographies, I can't remember. Tricked <laughs> so into a bouffant, and he used to make... So this is... He used he to, wait, hold on, just a sec, just a sec. He liked it to lay down and back and stand up in front like a reverse mullet. And <laughs> he he used to like to have the backup singers, like, dote on him and do his hair before the shows. <laughs> like, they would all crowd around him and, like, do his hair and be his, like, weird mommy figure for a second. <laughs> That's Dylan in 86. Mm. So Nadero Raider for 86. I mean, before we get to scoring his awful album, I mean, I, it's pretty bad. Even though he was trying really hard, I want to give it like a, I want to give it like a 2.0. I don't remember the scale of Nadero Raider or how it works. But, <laughs> we cannot well, fight about this anymore. We can't. Zero is we bad. Can't check the Nadero Raider. We have too many different scales for all kinds of predictions. Zero is but. bad. Ted is good. That's all you need to know. Oh, okay. All right, all right, all right. Because zero is zero's the worst you can get. That's your nader. That's pretty low, nader raider. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. But you got to give him a point for actually trying and for tricking oh, his yeah. hair into a bouffant. Okay. All right. All right, so I guess i got to pass it to you, unless you had another question yeah, about go. year and hair. Let's go. All right, well, Jake, 1986 uh, could be subtitled David Bowie Goes to the Movies. <laughs> oh, good. And I... 
I think we need to start things off by addressing the flam the, by just uh, taking care of the flamboyantly dressed Tina Turner wig wearing elephant in the room. Let's do it. And that is Labyrinth. Yes. Sweet Labyrinth. 1986 is Labyrinth. And Labyrinth is such a strange little animal. <laughs> because, um, I mean, if you're about our age, which I'm 35 and you're 37. Yeah. It seems to be one of those, like, classic movies from the 80s that all of us have seen and had some kind of, like, magical love for. It's, like, right yeah. up there with, I don't know, the Goonies and the Sandlot. And the, Back dark, to the, the Dark Crystal. It's, it's in this, like, short list, you know, top ten movies that we remember from when we were kids in the 80s. Definitely. And for whatever reason, it's just in there. And I, I remember watching it as a kid. I thought David Bowie was a woman. Uh-huh. <laughs> I did not think it was a male. We're not sure that he was found, at that time. Found that out years later, that he was actually a man. Uh, but the other thing about this movie is there's so many people have so much love for Labyrinth. Yeah. Like, to this day. And I remember when Bowie died. And uh, and I, I remember, like, you know, going on Facebook and stuff, and people were posting stuff. And I had friends posting, you know, like, pictures of him as Labyrinth. And me being, like, a little, you know, like, musical nerd on all this and just yeah. obsessed with this music side, going, like, Psh. and you're not a true fan, you know, if Labyrinth is what you think of as you died. <laughs> I'm such a jerk, you know? You are a jerk. Whatever. I'm a, I am a jerk sometimes. <laughs> uh, but it didn't take me long then to realize a little more I'm reading all the stuff that came out after he died because it was such a big deal. Uh, about how many different how many different ways people were connected to Bowie, like what was important about him. And for me, it's always it's with the music. The music's what's most important. There you go. But number, there are all these people it's all about the fashion. It's about his movies. It's about you know his LGBT stuff. About yep. his yep. like all these different facets to Bowie. And so it felt like I, I got over it pretty quick. I'm like, oh no, this is just what really clicks for them. What's important to Bowie about them is Labyrinth and remembering this movie and you know. It's one of those that people do all kinds of stuff about. I, I don't know. It's got this, like, it's such a cult classic. Definitely. And, I mean, there's currently talks about making a sequel or a prequel or something. Don't do that. I know. I don't think we should do that. But apparently it's going to happen. Okay. But, you know, without David Bowie or, you know, Jim Henson, who directed The Beast and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's such, I, I rewatched it with my seven-year-old. Uh-huh. in preparation for the show. He had never watched it. We tried to watch it with him one time a couple years ago, and it was too scary. And watching this, the movie's much scarier than I remembered it being. So yeah. he, he had a little bit of trouble even now, but we, we did make it through. Um, it's a profoundly strange film. It's a very, <laughs> like, I mean, it is. There's all, the basic plot is a very young Jennifer Connelly before uh, she had reached, you know, acting fame. Uh, I think she's 14, I want to say. Her brother is kidnapped by the goblins, and she has to go into the labyrinth to get it back from Jareth, the goblin king, played by Bowie. Oh, yeah. Who, ironically, is the only character in the labyrinth who's not a goblin or a creature or something. He's the only person there. And she goes through all these like really amazing sets, like the sets and puppets that thing are just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Like, sitting this is 1986, and sitting there watching this stuff, I have no clue how they're doing, like, 80% of it. And, uh... My son and I also watched a special about like an hour long making of Labyrinth, which was fascinating. Like, oh, yeah. to see how they made all this stuff. It was really great. It was, oh, I like, love those practical effects. I, I miss that practical effects thing so much. It was just so cool. Yeah, because they almost know there was a tiny bit of computer stuff on there. It was almost no, it's almost entirely practical. And the thing is just incredible. Um, and just a very strange film because, you know, she's against Jareth. There's also this kind of like. I don't know, romantical stuff happening between mm. the two of them, even though she's 14. That's gross. Maybe it's kind of gross, but there's nothing, I don't know, it's strange. It's supposed to be kind of a metaphor for her 
going to adulthood and being faced with some of this adult stuff and okay. like processing all of this too. And it, I know it's it's impressive, but there's you know definitely some problems with it as well. Some of it does not age real well. Um, I wrote down that you know the true fan of this or the true star of this film is uh, David Bowie's package. <laughs> his cod piece. His cod piece. <laughs> it's out there. What about his hair? Isn't that the true star? Isn't that the true star? The true star of that of the film is his Tina Turner aping wig. Yeah, yeah, that's big. Yeah. It's big and awesome. It's big and awesome. Well, the two together no. strike quite a strike, strike quite a picture. I gotta say. They, well, he was hanging out with Tina Turner a lot in '86. It's true. Well, they were they were they were pals. That's nice. Uh, I forgot was going at this. I don't remember. Anyway. Yeah, Bowie wrote and recorded six different songs for Labyrinth. Uh, two of them were released as singles. Another one was slated to be released as a single to the point where they actually made a music video and everything, oh. and it never was released. So Underground was the first, and we'll talk more about that down in the points section. Magic Dance was released as a single <laughs> in 87. Great. And it was scheduled as The World Falls Down was supposed to come out in November, which is a, I think it's a really good song underneath it. But there is so much glossy sense and mm. 80s nonsense mm. draped over these songs. Yeah. It, it's dangerously close to being like like Lady in Red type song. Oh. As the world falls down, is a, is a, it's a very, I don't know, it's a love song. Are you making fun of Lady in Red? Is that what I'm hearing? Lady <laughs> in Red. That's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that kind of like soft rock schmaltz. Yeah. As, as the world falls down, it's also it's a really good song that is way too close to being that soft rock schmaltz. Also a mid-80s classic sound. Schmaltz. Cl- so classic. Schmaltz. So Labyrinth was, kind of got mixed reviews at the time. It didn't do super well at the box office. Okay. It didn't recoup. But then it did really well almost immediately on a home video and, and even still, like they're never really seeing, you know, super deluxe editions of it. Of and course they It's all right. going over there. Right. And Bowie's performance has also been kind of a mixed bag like as to how people think about it. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's decent, but it, I don't know. He's not supposed to be the focus, in a sense. But I did get some pretty choice quotes about from, from the time about Bowie. I don't remember where I got this from. I should have written down where I got them. About Bowie in the movie. I think you're going to enjoy this. I'm ready. <clears throat> One review described him as a kabuki sorcerer who offers his ravishing young antagonist the gilded perks of adult servitude. Oh, that's... What? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody got. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Somebody went on thesaurus.com for that one. <laughs> no, thesaurus.com in nineteen eighty six. Oh, thesaurus. Oh, uh, what's it? Okay. And my other favorite one was <laughs> the casting of Bowie can't be faulted on any counts. He has just the right look for a creature who is the object of both loathing and secret desire. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Were they really? Which could be a pretty good description of him, like for his entire career. So they really both loathing and secret desire. That'll be my the name of my uh, of my Bowie biography. So to both loathing and secret <laughs> desire. <laughs> oh man, it'd be the first Bowie biography ever that doesn't use a line out of his own songs as the title and doesn't Great. sell any copies at all. <laughs> doesn't sell any copies at all. Pre-ordered episode. People like this buy. <laughs> just be our other never released book. <laughs> Boy, people really didn't have a uh, any sort of problem with sexualizing fourteen-year-olds in movies, did they? At that I time. don't know. I don't. I strangely, 
I just did not Ravishing see young protagonist. I was really confused about this. People like mention it regularly in reviews and stuff, but I've not seen any backlash to the fact that yes, she's fourteen and Bowie would have been Wow almost forty. Yeah, wow. Let's not even say that. That's terrible. And I mean not, you know, nothing happens. And there is like it's kind of a Purchase this because when she, she's making up the story about herself and the Goblin King beforehand, she really likes fantasy stories. It's before her brother actually gets kidnapped, okay. and she, she talks about how like the the Goblin King is in, is in love with this this girl, which is a very like common fantasy trope, you know. Sure, back at, at older stories when you know forty year olds regularly marry fourteen year olds, uh, like this would have you know this wasn't a thing, and so I think it kind of creeps in that way. And when you look at it that way, it feels less creepy, maybe. I, I just mean I'm I'm more like concerned about the the reviews and the critics being like she's so ravishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of it in there, and not yeah. it's kind of out there. You again, know, make a big deal of the fact that she is 14. <clears throat> oh well. So that's labyrinth. Oh great. That's labyrinth. We'll point it up later on. Bowie did. There's a sound. Bowie released a soundtrack related to it. And we'll get to that more later on. Great. Um, that's not Bowie's only movie from the year. Oh, of course not. His another, his lesser known 1986 film is Absolute Beginners. Absolute uh, Which is a British film. It's set in 1958 um, around, you gotta understand, I mean, the 50s, when you think of it, when us as Americans, when we think of the 50s, we think of just like this golden age of, you know, everything's great and perfect and... Definitely. Smiling people in the The suburbs. greatest generation. Right, but what we forget as Americans often is we is it's like things were not like this in Europe. Yeah, because it's all coming off of World War Two. Right, and they were decimated. Well, World War Two is where it happened, so they are <laughs> you know in Europe is where it happened. Yeah. So you know, like you get things happen out of war. You know, some good stuff happens out of war in terms of economic type stuff. You know, you're selling stuff. There's a lot of industry. There's a lot of unification of the country, but then also. A lot of your stuff gets destroyed. Right, Lots America of, like, essentially got almost all, all the of good stuff out of World War, out of, out of a war, and none of the bad stuff. Yeah, we didn't fight except for some, you know, islands in the Pacific. We didn't fight on American soil, um, by and large. You know, Pearl Harbor, obviously, but but Europe, like Britain, was just decimated. They've been bombed for years. Oh yeah, and London so was. They didn't have this like sweet, happy fifties. They had this really tough, like getting out of all this rebuilding fifties. And it wasn't towards the end of the year, the the decade, that they started getting a little better. So this kind of focuses on that time. Um, it's really talking about the rise of teenagers, and teenagers as a social group that really came up in the fifties. That happened in America too. They became not just kids; they became kind of their only, their own kind of area and doing things. And, yeah. And there's also a lot of stuff with race mixed into this movie too. Okay. Now it's done as a like Technicolor big budget musical. Which sounds like a bad idea, but Whoa. I actually liked this movie. Okay. I enjoyed it. I, didn't, I hadn't seen it before. I just watched it for this. I had never seen it before, and I liked it. And it follows some yeah, some teenage characters trying to figure out. It's got a little it's a little overstuffed and it kinda loses its focus sometimes, I'll say that. But it's an interesting movie and I liked it. Um, Bowie actually does not have a idea he has a smaller role in it than I thought. I thought he had a bigger part than this. Uh, he plays this kind of slimy ad man. And so our main characters are all teenagers and they're kinda like I don't know. Our main guy is, is in the process of selling out to impress a girl because, you know, why, why wouldn't you? You got to. And so he, mix, he mixes up with Bowie, who has a this really, like, over-the-top song where he, like, dances on a giant typewriter and climbs <laughs> a mountain. And Whoa. It's just, it's, oh, it's really cool. The set pieces are really, I, okay. yeah, again, this, I liked this movie. I legitimately liked it. All right. interesting. So Bowie's good. role is pretty, is pretty small, but it was uh, interesting. Way to Bowie. Way to Bowie. Bowie to... 
Uh, Bowie did. He did not release an album in 1986, but he still managed to release ten original songs. <laughs> ten from are three different gonna, movies. Are you going to go through them all one by one? No, we're not. Yay! But he released. Uh, there were six new songs on Labyrinth. Okay, right. So that There's counts. There's one on Absolute Beginners, which is a title track. Okay. And he also released a title track for a movie called When the Wind Blows, which he's not yet has nothing to do with. Okay. But I, I want kind of want to see it. It sounds really interesting. <laughs> I watched the trailer for it. It's an animated film. <laughs> About an elderly couple Whoa. dealing with the fallout after a nuclear war. What? Yes. That does not sound like the most 1986 thing I've ever heard. No, it doesn't. It sounds really like kind of fascinating and interesting. It got good reviews, apparently. And the okay. fact the whole thing's animated, but yeah. it's just the two of them. And, uh, like, leading up to the war and paying attention to this, they're both retired. And, uh, and then it happens. And they have this, like, little fallout shelter. And then they're dealing with this, dealing with radiation poisoning and stuff afterwards, apparently. Wow. So, there you go. Way to doubt right. it. I'm going to doubt it. Way to Bowie. Way to Bowie. Uh, also notably has, so Bowie had did the theme song, the title track, but it has a score written by Roger Waters. Oh, what do you know about that? I know. Our friend from Pink Again, Floyd. I, kinda, I didn't watch this movie, but I kind of want to. Yeah. And this leads me into now, and I'm so glad that, that uh, Dylan did a movie theme in 86 too. So I'm going <laughs> to talk for just a minute about movie themes. Okay. Movie, movie theme music videos. Movie theme music, music videos. videos. Okay. Because all four of Bowie's singles from 1986, well, he, he did three, and then there's the fourth one that didn't actually come out, but did have a music video, which I found. Okay. All four of these music videos are for movie themes. And I would say at least three of them are really excellent videos. Okay. But there seems to be this need whenever you're making a movie theme music video. You yeah. can just make the music video whatever you want to. Yeah. But at some point... For no reason whatsoever, you have to show clips from the movie. Oh, absolutely. That's that's like rule number one. Rule number one. So you got to make it like this really interesting, like the Absolute Beginners video is really pretty good. And it's very like retro. It's all in black and white. And Bowie is in a trench coat and stuff looking pretty good. Especially for 1986. He's looking, he's looking pretty good in there. Way to go. And he's chasing out this weird like zebra woman thing. I don't know what's going on. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Rule number but two. every once in a while, a he like, has to look into a shop window. And instead of those reflection, he sees clips from the movie Absolute Beginners. Definitely. In full blazing color. I can see it. I can see it now. And, uh, and you know, under, the one for Underground and Labyrinth, he's like, at one point, he, you know, he's walking along and literally looks down a manhole cover, and inside the manhole cover are <laughs> clips from Labyrinth. <laughs> one of the characters from Labyrinth shows up in the music video, which actually kind of works. Oh, in uh, As the World Falls Down. He's uh, somebody's <laughs> making copies, and the copies start coming out as like pictures of scenes from Labyrinth. Oh man, that's great! Like, why does this even happen every single time? Well, I think uh, so. Why does it have to be a trailer for the movie also at the same time, or just do like as the world falls down? This is the one that I really didn't get. Is is the uh, the clip from the movie? Is actually like would have made an amazing music video. It's basically a music video stuck in the middle of the movie anyway. Okay, why don't you just use that? I just think it was there, that was the, I don't know if somebody did it successfully to start, but like music videos were still on the rise, and they were trying to do yeah, this. 86, we're pretty, we're, we're there, you know. They're trying to do this like multi. MTV is large and in charge, 86. This multifaceted marketing campaign to make sure that you go see the movie. Like in Dylan's case, he didn't even bother recording any footage of himself. He just screamed, it's Helltime Man, over and over again. And they just showed <laughs> clips of the movie. It's like five minutes of so the movie. Nothing but clips of the movie. Yeah, and they're all smash cut, like, like 
Oh man, I, can't, I wish I could describe it better. It's I, just, I, I just almost would rather they did that. Just don't try to have it both ways, you know. Don't try to make like a good art, um, artistic music video and then have to stick clips in there. Are you saying any artistry? Are you saying that the world doesn't need really semi weird creative ways to show clips of the movie in a movie music video? <laughs> I might be saying that. It might that, be shocking, but it might be. I think that might copy be thing that. sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> what an idea! Oh yeah! What a pastiche! Oh, yeah. I will note that in 1987, the his second single off of Labyrinth did just straight up use the footage from the movie, which is go. just what they should have done anyway. Well, I don't know. I have to disagree with you wholeheartedly. Okay. I think it's way dumber and more fun to have it both ways, personally. All right, a couple more things here <laughs> as we are stretching towards another long show. Yeah! Uh, but we only had one performance in 1986. It was for, it was at Live Aid. It's probably Live Aid or I don't know Live Aid works. Live Aid was in 85. Yeah, well, I don't know. It was something like coming back to Live Aid or something. Okay. <laughs> it was something else Live Aid related. I don't know how it works. Live Aid. More live. Well, I don't know. It was something related to all this. All I right. apparently did not do my research well enough on this particular I believe clip. But uh, Bowie and Jagger, are, there's our mech for you. Jag Jag. And Jag Jag. <laughs> Mick Jag. Big Jag. Bo- Bobo. And Mick number one. He is Mick number one, clearly. Mick Ronson Mick is Ron- Mick number Mick one. Mick Mick number two. No, Mick Ronson's Mick number one. His number one? Mick Jagger beat number on two? Our podcast, I'm, I'm, on our I'm podcast, cool I mean, in the world, obviously, Mick Jagger's Mick number one. Right. In in our show, it's clearly In our hearts. In our hearts. Anyway, uh, the two of them had, of course, done an atrocious cover that was gigantically successful of Dancing in the Streets. <laughs> Yay! As part of Live Aid. Yeah. Anyway, right. as whatever this was in 1986, they... Uh, performed it live together. Oh, like and actually I gotta together? Say, what's that? Like actually together on the same stage? Actually together okay. on the same stage. Yeah, it was a big performance of some kind, and they so they popped in for one song, and that was it. That was that, you know, all kinds of stars in there. Yeah. I gotta say, I found the clip. Bowie is completely horribly upstaged by Mick Jagger. Yeah. Jagger's out there just living it, loving it, <laughs> doing everything. Just being there. And Mick. Bowie, like, it's just kind of awkward to see Bowie upstaged by somebody. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, yeah. Very often. But he could not compete with Jagger on that. No, Jagger, day. for whatever you want to say about him, apparently he was a magnetic performer at all times. Yeah, well, yeah, he's just out there, uh, and Bowie like looks like he's the backup singer or something. Wow, when it's very much a duet. So it was a little disappointing. A little oh, disappointing I'm sorry, man. Though. Your man got up stage. Maybe he just Mick wasn't. He Jagger. wasn't warmed up. It's the only song he performed the entire year. <laughs> That's right. And Mick That's Jagger, right. as we know, is always warmed up at all times. He's ready. <laughs> <laughs> All times. <laughs> He's ready to just entertain that crowd, baby. <laughs> anyway. All right. Uh, my last couple things in here is we have another... Bowie did not release an album of his own, but he did release... He uh, was very heavily involved in Iggy uh, Pops. Oh, good. Album. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> what an album. album title. Just very much for 1986. Bowie, his collaborations with Iggy Pop are really kind of unique in his... I don't know, his over... Uh, on three separate occasions, Bowie basically made an Iggy Pop album that Iggy yeah. Pop sings on. Yep. Um, the other two were both in 1977. They're both excellent, The Idiot and Lust for Life. Both of them, he collaborated really, really heavily with, with uh, Iggy Pop to the point where, I mean, the general, it's, it's not entirely sure, but Bowie wrote most of the music for all three of these albums. Right. He produced them all. He mixed them all. He performed on them. He did backup vocals. He was really heavily involved in these albums. Um, so the two in 1977 and the one in 1986. This is their third and final, like, that major of collaboration. But we probably, like, co-wrote songs and a couple other 
pop albums. And pop was involved in Bowie's 1984 album, Tonight. But yeah. that was about it. Okay. Anyway, this album has been called uh, Iggy Pop's Let's Dance, in reference <laughs> to wow. Bowie's 1983 album, Let's Dance. Basically, the album were completely sold out hardcore yeah. Yeah. To, uh, to success. Did it work? To commercial success, it did. It, it was, did. It was his best-selling album. See, I don't remember Just this. Just like Let's Dance is Bowie's best-selling I don't remember album. that at all about Iggy Pop. Not that I know a lot about Iggy Pop, but I feel like I would know his most no, successful I, album. No, he's just, yeah, I mean, it's, like Let's Dance, it's a decent-ish album. Yeah. It's not like a complete awful album, but it's just not what you think of Iggy Pop doing, like, pop. That's weird. That's really weird. Yeah. So apparently the album was recorded while they were on a ski vacation together with their respective <laughs> women. Excellent. This is what I, this now, is that's what I an, now that's apparently an 80s. Would, uh, that's an 80s. They went to right some there. like chalet, you know, somewhere <laughs> for like three months or something. I don't know. It was a long time. And uh, with their women. Yeah. I don't know who either one of them was dating at the time. Who, who knows? And they would go skiing in the day and they would record at night. Which is exactly what you think of when you think of, you know, wow. the Godfather punk e pop. Absolutely. Skiing in the day, <laughs> recording a slick pop album at night. Drinking mimosas. <laughs> Drinking mimosas with two lovely ladies. Hey, sitting by the fire with our sweaters on. <laughs> sweaters on. I, I mean, I gotta assume he was wearing a sweater for much of the recording of blah, blah, blah. He better have. I mean, I, I did kind of wonder, how do you go skiing with no shirt on? Pop, how is it done? And leather pants, really or tight. Did, or <laughs> leather pants really get in the way. <laughs> I think I think he was wearing a huge sweater with a kitten on it. That's all I can. <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw one interview with Bowie from. <laughs> I think he only did like one interview in '86, and he's wearing this big, gigantic, ridiculous sweater. Oh yeah, you couldn't tell what was on it. I don't think it was kittens, but there was something on it. <laughs> there should have been kittens. An extra recognizable thing, probably if you can see well enough. Uh, also notably, apparently some of these songs were started during the sessions for Bowie's 1984 album Tonight, which is one of his worst albums, Great. which featured pop in multiple lists. So, there you go. Yeah, all right. And with that note, our last, or two last things for 1986, Bowie did start recording his worst album ever. Yes. In 19, he recorded it in 1986, called Never Let Me Down. It was not released until 1987, yep. which I believe is Bowie's Nader. We'll get into that later. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the year and hair. The later Nader orator. The later narrator. <laughs> okay. Uh, Give me some hair. So we have a double, a double year in hair. What? So the first like regular year in hair is what I saw him at different times. And this is what his hair looks like in Absolute Beginners too. It's kind of that like, kind of like soft spike where everything's kind of up. It looks like this kind of like helmet on top of the head. What I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, it's not. It's short. It's not very long. Okay. Uh, is and it? so it looks vaguely 50s, which is, you know, Absolute Beginners was set in the 50s, and that yeah. kind of seems like the hair he had during that time. Okay. It's not the worst style he's had by a long shot. Have we you know, gotten the worst like styles an, yet? An, ar- an army sergeant or, sergeant or something, where it's just kind of like, up. you know what I'm talking about? I don't know how to describe this better. Kinda. I'm sure know. there's a lot of Aquanet involved. Yeah, sure. definitely. Yeah, because it doesn't look combed. It's like kind of soft. Okay. <laughs> But it's up. Uh, but it's I not wish... like a spiky spike, but it's up. I don't know. All right. It's not too bad for him, you know, on the hair, on the, the urine hair on scale, I'm going to give him like a three and a half. 3.5, wow. Yeah, it's not bad. All right. But we also need a separate urine hair for the labyrinth here. Well, of course. It deserves its own. It does. And let's face it's it. It's a historic urine hair. <laughs> it's so big. Uh, it's, it's so big. 
So okay. I'm going to give that guy a 1.5. And I have one last anecdote that I didn't write down for some reason. But Jake, I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> we weren't living in anywhere near each other at the time. But in, one year for Halloween, oh. I went as uh, as Jareth from Labyrinth. I do remember that. And I remember I being do. shocked at the veracity by which you, you know, you pulled that off. You looked... I did. Well, at the time, I was working at a costume shop, and I got my costumes for free. Right. So I could really go... Claudia, I could really go over the top in our costumes. Yeah, so that's pretty sweet. And so I did, I did, in fact, buy a Tina Turner wig. It was marketed as a Tina Turner wig. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I went for the makeup, and I had... I wore tights, which I was really nervous about, but I, I went for it. You had to. And, uh, yeah. And the rest of the stuff was all off of the women's rack. Codpiece? No, no copies. You skipped the you skipped the cod piece. It was it was all me, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> that is talk about seedy. I don't want to hear about that anymore. <laughs> That's maybe the seediest thing I've you said. You never get to make fun of me for being seedy ever again. That was borderline <laughs> soft PG thirteen, Chaz. It's on the border. <laughs> all right let's lay out some points here yeah i can't wait this is so fun we're gonna see yeah, so somehow may not make it positive this year Chaz, let me tell right, you go. i i it's gonna be hard to beat the score that i have in terms of worst ever for me okay, okay. this is really bad and it it's because we had i think we only had one of our guys ever end in the negatives before this time i know but we ended in the negatives in 1989 i know but i think that's the only time that's it, as far as I remember. Now, well, I'm going way negative here, and I want to start with uh, the seminal 1986 album, Knocked Out Loaded. Tall. All music gives it a two out of five stars, somehow making it to two. And I had to laugh because um, back in the day, you know, Rolling Stone, you know how they are with their guys. If they like yeah, a guy, yeah. Dylan, Bowie probably, uh, Mick Jagger especially, is like famous for getting good reviews for his crappy solo albums. <laughs> So Rolling Stone was like, eh, you know, he's trying, and gave it a 3.5. 3 out of okay. 5, excuse me. And then in their later Rolling Stone album guide, somebody, you know, came to their senses a generation later and gave it a 1 out of 5. <laughs> Just knocked it, <laughs> knocked it right down. Which it deserves. Oh, uh, we got to remember the people at home really, oh, yeah, really tell them. quick about our points and stuff. We have different totals for different things. Albums get the most possible points. But we allow for negative points. So, like an album, the lowest you can go is negative 5. The highest you can go is positive 5. Jake, what did this this album get? I can't tell you yet. I have some other things to oh, go over. You got more anecdotes. Okay, oh, go. I got I got more anecdotes. All right. So I listened to this very carefully. I laugh because, you know, there are some Dylan albums, many in fact, that I know note for note, and I don't even have to listen to them to give them scores. Uh-huh. You know, I do anyway because it's fun to do that. But like, yeah. I really listened to this jazz, and I had like little. I had, uh, I had little comments for every song. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bore you with that. But here's my overall comment, and I'll get to that by way of an anecdote. Brooke, my wife, um, came in the house yesterday, and she very cautiously was like, so, do you like that album that you left on in the car by Bob Dylan? (laughs) Because I had been listening to it in the car in preparation for this. And she was very gentle and careful. She didn't, she desperately... Wanted, didn't want to hurt my feelings in case I liked this album. Because we don't listen to the bad albums around the house. Like It's not like uh-huh. anyone's familiar uh-huh. with this. And I'm like, no. No. <laughs> it's one of Dylan's worst albums and she was so relieved. She's like, what's it called? Knocked out? She, uh, she was going to be really worried about me. She thought about cutting me off from the podcast if I was about to be like <laughs> Oh, 
man, what a tragedy that oh, would be. Oh, no, what a tragedy that would be. Especially since Brooke is our biggest so, fan. And she also said, she was like, who is this? Like, Bad Paul Simon? Is this the Eurythmics? And I was like, oh, funny you should mention, because Dave Stewart from the Eurythmics helped him, helped him, quote-unquote, on this album. And my one note that I want to share with you, and I wrote this down before I heard what Brooke had said about it, and everything is, um, I think overall this album is kind of like if the the rhythmics were really boring and didn't have any Lennox to kind of like <laughs> make it okay. <laughs> That's kind of what it sounds like. It's like gated drums, you know. Bob is using his shouty, screamy, weird arena voice the whole time. Oh yeah. The songs are terrible for the most part. Um, just like sloppy, they're slipshod, they're just tossed together, he's doing covers, he's doing collaborations, um, and so what I have for you is a uh, a matrix of themes throughout the songs. So in each song I wrote down a little matrix of themes, and I want you okay. to, I want you to guess how many songs out of the eight have this theme. Does that make sense? This is a game for you. Yeah, I think, okay, I think Okay, I so it. how many out of eight feature Backup singers, female backup singers. Eight. That's it. You got it. Eight out of eight, baby. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, how many are lightly reggae <laughs> out of eight? Oh. Uh, I'm going to go with six. Oh, man. It's only one. He, uh, oh, man. He reined in his wow. lightly reggae. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So uh, the start of his reggae is just lightly reggae, period. Just lightly reggae. Okay. Um, but we hit it in 84. <laughs> well, Dylan... Uh, he, was, he was, I was I was out of his reggae phase by this time. Yeah, I thought Dylan was too. Actually, no, that's not true. He wasn't at 86. Sorry, I have to take <laughs> Firmly in Blood the reggae. soundtrack. Firmly in the reggae. reggae <laughs> <laughs> okay, how many are driving 80s white blues songs with gated drums? Five. Ooh, close. Four out of eight. Four okay. out of eight. Okay. How many have rapid-fire lyrics jammed into the meter out of eight? Three. Ooh, four. You're getting good, okay. Chaz. You're really I'm rolling here. Good, yeah, except for, my, okay. except for the reggae one. How I'm many out of eight, and there is one, the, uh, at least one, the, the answer is not zero. How many on here are a Dylan classic? Oh, it's gonna be one then. It's one. It's one. That's <laughs> the answer's not zero. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is not point five. It's one. Uh, a song called "Brownsville Girl," who he co-wrote with Sam Shepard, is an actual classic Dylan song. It's okay, pretty well, great. It still fun. sounds like '80s Dylan, but at least yeah. it's a great song. It's one of his like weird, long, ridiculous epics. Okay. Lots of great words in it. Sam Shepard helped. Okay, and then the last one. How many out of eight are accusatory breakup songs with bad lyrics? Like, really bad lyrics. Three. Ooh, a full five out of eight, Chaz. Five out of eight. Five out of eight are unbearably you really, bad. You really dived into this album. I did. I wrote, I, like I said, I wrote it down. Anyway, so, um, <clears throat> so for the score, Chaz, there's one good song on here, and the rest mm-hmm. are, are really bad. And so, you know, we're definitely in worst album territory, mm-hmm. but there is one good song. So... I'm going to give it a negative 4.0. Oh, whoa. I think there's two there's two albums that I look forward to being worse than this one. I, I think. was going to say, is this his worst one? I don't know if Bowie's got one that low. I don't know You're if not going negative 4? Like, I'll you don't think his worst album would be a negative 5? I kind of feel like anybody's worst album would be a negative 5. Well, I, I guess maybe we need to talk about this, because I haven't been scoring them just based on, you know, 
like Bowie, like, but, but I mean, his worst album still has like something to listen to. On. Okay. All right. Well, this has one thing to listen to. I'm okay. giving it a negative four, Chaz. I will never listen to it ever. And Brownsville Girl is actually on his Greatest Hits Volume Three, which I would also never listen to. But at least it like warrants at least mentioning. They knew it. They, they knew what to put on there. Well, maybe we do have to have a discussion about points. Maybe we're thinking about this differently. Not right yeah. now. We don't have to. Okay. <laughs> we got, we got work to he had two. Right, uh, yep, I'm pointing it up. It up. Uh, he's got two singles. One is called "Got My Mind Made Up." Um, from Knocked Out Loaded, I'm going to give it a negative. I know, I know it's, I know that it's not. Uh, that song is not Brownsville Girl, so I'm assuming it's that not. He did put it. He did have the common sense to put Brownsville Girl on the B side. I've got my mind made up. Mm, so okay. that's that's something. At least he put it on the album. It's shocking, yeah. really. Um, that was destined to be one of his like great outtakes for sure. Like the one good yeah. song. Anyway, got my mind made up. Has got Tom Petty playing a pretty pretty cool rhythm guitar part. It's like kind of a driving acoustic kind of a thing. It has a slightly interesting rhythm, but it's terrible, so I'll give it a negative 0.5. Okay. Um, Band of the Hand, from the movie called Band of the Hand, in which oh, he does yeah. not sing Band of the Hand, is a little more inspired and centered than what's on the album, so I'm going to give it a zero. Plus, the, the, the music video is <laughs> nice terribly one. delightful. Just wonderfully delightful. <laughs> nice one. Nice one, <laughs> nice one. And then, Chaz, <clears throat> and this, you know, maybe it's okay now because I gave... Dylan's such a low score for, for KOL. But uh, there are some, there's a lot of strife in thinking of how to score the street rock rap single. Yeah. Um, it's often, if not always, included in Bob's worst songs, like the top ten worst songs sure. of Bob's career. I'm going to go hard the other way. I think Bob Dylan rapped on a record, Chaz. He uh-huh. rapped. <laughs> Do you hear me, Bob Dylan? I, I heard you. I heard. Yeah, I, I'm I think, surprised his involvement would warrant any points at all. I what? I'm giving it a I'm point. Surpri- I'm giving I'm it a point. His involvement in this would warrant any points at all. I'm giving it a point. I have to. It's the the year is so crappy. It doesn't matter. Okay, I'll, yeah, I'll let it slide. Please, please let it slide, Chess. Or I'm not doing it's, that. Uh, it's already obvious that Bowie's pulling this one off. Oh, he's pulling it right off now. big time. All right. The uh, the knockdown. It's, it's not like I, not something you could be proud of, but yeah, he's gonna win. <laughs> That's right. Knocked out, loaded tour. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna score that and the hard to handle in the same kind of way. In that sure. it was you know sort of well received, but I wouldn't I wouldn't pop on 1986 live album on my house. I would never do that. Uh-huh. So I'm gonna give both of those things a negative point five. So point five uh-huh. negative point five for each, uh, which brings his year, Chaz, his entire year, to negative four point five. The lowest score ever received since we've by far. since we started the podcast by yeah. far. Yeah, it's bad, man, and so that's it's why bad. that's why the Nader Raider warranted you know a two point oh. And uh, what can I say? Except can say? Uh, let's eighty six this entire operation. Boom! All right, all right, we're going here. Go. Bowie is going to hover. Well, we'll see here. Um, we're start with his movies. Uh, so Labyrinth and Absolute Beginners as his acting part of that. Yeah, Labyrinth. I don't know if his if his performance is that like impressive. It's by far his most iconic seminal role, and he's he's decent in it. And I feel like because he's so like famous for this role, this is my one like concession to Labyrinth, which okay. I don't think is as good as a lot of people think it is. Yeah, but we got to like recognize some kind of something in here. So of I'm course. giving him a one for it's Labyrinth. It's in the culture, okay, for his performance in there. All right. Uh, absolute beginners. He's not even nearly as much as I thought. I, I'm giving. A, I, I'm not even counting it really. Like I'm giving it a zero just because it's not. Okay. 
important enough to really warrant points. Yeah, sure. And he does well in that in the role, and I like the movie, but it's not enough for us to really count. Okay. Uh, getting into the Labyrinth soundtrack. So the mm. Labyrinth soundtrack is, Bowie did six new songs for Labyrinth. I mean, kind of six. One of them is, there's two different versions of one of the songs. Um, the other half of the soundtrack, the full length, is from the score by Trevor Jones. And Bowie had nothing to do with it whatsoever. So you and I talked about this because it's a full length release, but Bowie only did half of it. Right. Trying to figure out our point spread on this. Yeah. So the point spread for this is negative two to two. Right. Um, Bowie, I'm giving out a BVD award for, for Labyrinth. It's the BVD award for the most, his most dated release. <laughs> nice. Most it dated. Just sounds, it could not have been released in any year, maybe yeah. 85 or 87, but right. that's like, it's a three year spread. It it's could not have window. been released at any other time. It's got all the hallmarks of that period. And he's got, the songs are different ranges of decent-ish, but the production for me is just so awful. I just can't, yeah, I yeah. can't handle it with Labyrinth. I know a lot of people really love. So I'm giving, I gave the full point for his performance. Like right. That's my concession to the Labyrinth lovers out there. Okay. And I respect you, and I love you, and good <laughs> luck to you. But I can't, I can't do it. This is not something I can listen to. I'm, right. I'm sorry if you love it, but I can't. I can't. It's bad. Okay. Um, there's I love, I love your honesty right now. of decency and in in there, and they're very catchy songs. They've been fortunate second they had a lot since I've been listening to it a lot the last couple weeks. But they're still full of the terrible cheesy synths. Yeah. And uh, the drum machines, like those pounding like shotgun drum machines. You know, the <laughs> like you know, like there's, there's just yeah. They only ever play on you know first beat and third beat of every measure, yeah. and the third beat is always this like. <laughs> Like, it's just a shotgun going off every single time for some reason. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, and it's really, they're always really high in the mix, and I don't, I don't know why. Um, he's got, one of the songs he doesn't actually sing on, he might sing backing vocals, but he doesn't sing a lead vocal song, because characters from the movies do. He has got As the World Falls Down, which I think is a really good song underneath, but it's so dangerously close to, like, Lady in Red that I can't, can't handle it. Uh, anyway. I'm giving it, out of, out of a total spread of negative 2 to 2, I'm giving it a 0. 0.5. Wow. I'm sorry, negative, a negative, a negative 0.5. Oh, you put negative, okay, yeah. That sounds yeah. like more yeah, like what you were describing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> just, yeah, yeah, I, I struggle with that Makes one. sense. Uh, next up is Iggy Pop's album, Blah Blah Blah. Right. Due to Bowie's very, very large input involvement in this album. Uh, we're getting that one a, a negative 2 to 2 point spread yep. also. Yeah, we talked at length uh, about this, by the way. <laughs> What's that? We talked at length about this, by the way, audience. Yeah, we did. Yeah, so I don't, I don't <laughs> We're going to get yeah, it right. Not during the show. Uh, it is such a solid album, but it's not, it, and it reminds me a lot of what stance, is that there's, I'm not a huge fan of pop, of like big shiny pop. And that's, it's, it's more of a personal preference than actual qualities when I'm saying right here. Right. But it's, it's got some, some pretty good tunes in there and some pretty good uh, hooks and stuff. It's also got some just awful stuff in there. And to put Iggy Pop behind this veneer, it seems like such a strange decision. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre. With that said, this is his highest, his best-selling album ever. Yeah. It spawned five singles. Wow. Unbelievable. Uh, including including the- his highest-turning single ever, called Real Wild Child. Uh-huh. Wild One. Oh, I know There's that song. Cover. I know that song. Cover, yeah, I know. And that one I actually knew when I listened to it. Oh, Real I get wild it. Wild One. Wild One. I mean, it's a cover of a Real Wild song, One, too. Wild One. Yeah. And I'd like to know, Jake, that that song yeah. has uh, has been involved in a large number of 
distinctively 80s, early 90s movies. And I have a list for you of the ones that have featured it. <laughs> yeah, great. Real Wives Real Wives Child has featured in Pretty Woman. Uh-huh. Adventures in Babysitting. Great movie. Crocodile Dundee 2. <laughs> Not the first one, the second one. Problem Child. Oh, man, I remember that movie. Yeah. And Problem Child 2. <laughs> He's a real wild child again. <laughs> again. <laughs> Uh, so I've given that album a, also a negative 0.5. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Okay. You know, Finally, I always, but we had three singles uh, yeah. in 1986. Yep. The first one, Absolute Beginners, is often cited as his best song of the mid to late 80s. Okay. And I would probably concur with that. Okay. Uh, it's still not enough to give it a full point, I would think. Okay. <laughs> That's where we're again, at. Again, just some of the... I was listening to a bunch of these songs. I'm trying to get through all of these songs and listen to all this stuff. And uh, just like your wife was, you know, a little appalled at what was happening. Yeah. Mine was as well, only she wasn't polite about it. <laughs> she was kind of like, just made straight up ripping on all, making fun of these. I was listening to them all on my lap, because I don't have most of the stuff on Well, to, to be so fair... I was to do a lot of these songs. I was listening to, like, remixes and stuff of Absolute Beginners. And she yeah. just, I think she decided to go read upstairs. She was done. <laughs> while I was bringing out the podcast. Well, to be fair, my wife didn't like it. She was worried that I liked it. She was just a little oh, concerned. Oh, yeah, no... I don't think I don't think Claudia was didn't even care if I liked it or not. She's still gonna make fun of it. <laughs> She's gonna make fun of it. All right, fine. She's just going for it. So I'm giving Absolute Beginners a point five. Okay. That one came close. I really juggled between a point five and a one on that. It is a good song, but the dated updated nature of it for me right. just really hurt it. Yeah, that's that's the that's the rub. The that's the rub. Next one is Underground, which is the lead single off of Labyrinth. Okay. It's a very gospel-inspired tune. Mm. It's uh, it's in the closing credits, so it took me a while like, to remember even which song this one was, because he doesn't perform it in the movie, it's just from the closing credits. It's in the opening credits in a different version, and then it, yeah, the official version is the closing credits. I can't get behind the song, I just, it's just tough. A lot of people like this song, and I I, I can't do it. I get a negative point five. All right. And finally, we have When the Wind Blows, the right. song. Which was kind of a unique, like, rocket song. It had, like, some pretty heavy guitar behind it, kind of a unique time signature going on. I liked this one. I had, okay. I'd never heard the song before before researching for this. All right. So that was kind of interesting. The other ones I'd heard before this, and I hadn't. So I'm giving that one a point five also. It, it earns it. It deserves it. So. Okay. With all of that back and forth, <laughs> yeah. um, I think I told you a while ago that Bowie was going to be hovering right around zero, and I wasn't sure which side he'd end up on. Yep. He did end up on the positive side with positive point five. Bro, wow, what a year. <laughs> I know, I know. It's a good thing he didn't release an album proper, or that would have dove. Oh, no. That would have dove down. Been, then he would have been competing with He dinked Dylan, and, He think. dinked and dunked his way to a point five. And said he released, he released an album's worth of new material. Right. Because he, he released six songs in Labyrinth. He released three songs for uh, Absolute Beginners. One of which was, I didn't mention this, one of which is a strange cover of an Italian song with him singing in Italian. Oh, that sounds great. It's like it gets a background song in the movie. It makes sense in the context of the movie. It's very like a cheesy song. He just wanted to do his own version of it. But then it ended up on the soundtrack and stuff, which is interesting. <laughs> Way to go. Arriva Derek. So there we go. Another Bowie victory. Bowie's been on a little bit of a hot streak here. It's his third or fourth victory in a row. I can't remember. I know. Yeah, what are I you going to do? Hot streak is relative. And it's, very, it's very relative. His .5 hot streak. .5 hot streak. I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm just going to go back, you know. When I'm done with this, I'm going to do a magic dance, Jake. Dance, <laughs> yeah, magic dance. I wish you would. And in I, celebration. And I can't wait to 86 this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on <laughs> a Tina Turner fright wig and, and do a, a dance magic dance. <laughs> the dance magic dance. All right, what are we doing next time for dance magic dancing? Dance magic dancing. We're moving up to another, well, I think Dylan did all right. 
92. Did okay. Not a great year for Bowie either, but interesting one. We're going diving back into Tin Machine. Great. What year is oh, that? Tin Machine. What's that? 1982. I just said it. Well, you said 1982. I'm gonna go. I wanna. I wanna. Oh, s- I'm sorry. Not 1982. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, everyone. It's my first mistake ever on the podcast. That's it. Oh, you Retra- can do it. retraction action. Retraction action. 1992 is what we're doing instead. There it is. There it is. Yeah, the go. man comes around. 1992. All right. Okay. Uh, wow. I'm Charlie, and I'm like Bowie. I'm Jake, and I'm 86 and Dylan. And so on. Bye.